0: This episode is going to take a look at feminist theory, first as a social movement and then as a literary school of criticism. We'll cover the three waves of feminism and then address the questions that scholars ask of a work when determining its feminist values and its application to a societal pursuit of equality. The information in this episode comes from a blend of three main sources, each of which I will link you to on our Blackboard page. They are the uh, North Dakota State University website, the Purdue Online Writing Lab, and an article called Betty Friedan, The Three Waves of Feminism, written by Sally Ann Drucker. The term feminism describes political, cultural, and economic movements that aim to establish equal rights and legal protections for women. Over time, feminist activists have campaigned for issues such as women's legal rights, especially in regard to contracts, property, and voting, body integrity and autonomy, abortion and reproductive rights, including contraception and prenatal care, protection from domestic violence, sexual harassment and rape, workplace rights, including maternity leave and equal pay, and against all forms of discrimination that women encounter. Feminist history can be divided into three waves. The first wave occurring in the 19th and early 20th century was mainly concerned with women's right to vote. The Second wave at its height in the 1960s and 70s refers to the women's liberation movement for equal legal and social rights. And the third wave, beginning in the 1990s, refers to a continuation of and a reaction to second wave feminism. First-wave feminism promoted equal contract and property rights for women, opposing ownership of married women by their husbands. This movement emerged out of an environment of urban industrialism and liberal socialist politics. The goal of this wave was to open up opportunities for women. By the late 19th century, feminist activism was primarily focused on the right to vote. American first-wave feminism ended with the passage of the 19th Amendment, in 1919, granting women the right to vote. In its early stages, feminism was interrelated with the temperance and abolitionist movements, and it gave voice to now-famous activists like Elizabeth Blackwell, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Jane Addams, Dorothy Day, and Sojourner Truth, whose famous Ain't I a Woman speech is available on our Blackboard page. Victorian America saw women acting in, a, in very unladylike ways, like public speaking, public demonstrations, stints in jail, and this challenged the so-called cult of domesticity. Discussions about the vote and women's participation in politics led to an examination of the differences between men and women as they were then viewed. Some claimed, that women were morally superior to men. So their presence in the civic sphere sphere would uh, improve public behavior and the political process. In general, though, we tend to view feminism as a pursuit of equality, not superiority. Demanding a status of superiority would be a bit hypocritical, right? The second wave began in the 1960s and continued into the 90s. This wave unfolded in the context of the anti-war and civil rights movements and the growing self-consciousness of a variety of minority groups around the world. The new left was on the rise, and the voice of the second wave was increasingly radical. In this phase, sexuality and reproductive rights were dominant issues. And much of the movement's energy was focused on passing the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution, guaranteeing social equality regardless of sex. This phase began with protests against the Miss America pageant in Atlantic City in 1968 and 1969. Feminists parodied what they held to be a degrading cattle parade that reduced women to objects of beauty, dominated by a patriarchy that sought to keep them in the home or in dull, low-paying jobs. The radical New York group called the Red Stockings staged a counter pageant in which they crowned a sheep as Miss America and threw oppressive feminine artifacts such as bras, girdles, high heels, makeup, and false eyelashes into the trash can. Because the second wave of feminism found voice amid so many other social movements, it was easily marginalized and viewed as less pressing than, for example, black power or efforts to end the war in Vietnam. Feminists reacted by forming women-only organizations and consciousness-raising groups. In publications like The Bitch Manifesto and Sisterhood is Powerful, feminists advocated for their place in the sun. The second wave was increasingly theoretical. Based on a fusion of neo-Marxism and psychoanalytic theory, And began to associate the subjugation of women with broader critiques of patriarchy, capitalism, normative heterosexuality, and the women's role as wife and mother. Sex and gender were differentiated, the former being biological and the latter a social construct that varies culture to culture and over time. Whereas the first wave of feminism was generally propelled by middle-class western cisgender white women, The second phase drew in women of color and developing nations seeking sisterhood and solidarity, claiming women's struggle is class struggle. Feminists spoke of women as a social class and coined phrases such as the personal is political and identity politics in order to demonstrate that race, class, and gender oppression are all related. They initiated a concentrated effort to rid society top to bottom of sexism, from children's cartoons to the highest levels of government. Second wave feminism of the 1960s and 80s, to, from the 60s to the 80s, focused on the issues of equality and discrimination. That second wave slogan, the personal is political identified women's cultural and political inequalities as inextricably linked and encouraged women to understand how their personal lives reflected sexist power structures. Betty Friedan was a key player in second wave feminism. Her book, The Feminine Mystique, criticized the idea that women could find fulfillment only through childbearing and homemaking. According to Friedan's New York Times obituary, her book ignited the contemporary women's movement in 1963, and as a result, permanently transformed the social fabric of the United States and countries around the world and is widely regarded as one of the most influential nonfiction books of the 20th century. Frieden hypothesizes that women are victims of false beliefs, requiring them to find identity in their lives through husbands and children. This causes women to lose their own identities in that of their family. The third wave of feminism began in the mid 1990s and was informed by post colonial and postmodern thinking. In this phase, many constructs were destabilized, including the notions of universal womanhood, body, gender, sexuality, and heteronormativity. An aspect of third wave feminism that mystified the mothers of the earlier feminist movement was the re-adoption by young feminists of the very lipstick, high heels, and cleavage proudly exposed by low-cut necklines that the first two phases of the movement identified with male oppression. Pink Floor, a video game company in the 90s, expressed this new position when proudly claiming that it's possible to have a push-up bra and a brain at the same time. The girls of the third wave stepped onto the stage as strong and empowered, rejecting victimization and defining feminine beauty for themselves as subjects, not as objects of a sexist patriarchy. They developed a rhetoric of mimicry, which appropriated derogatory terms like slut and bitch in order to subvert sexist culture and deprive it of verbal weapons. The web is an important tool of girly feminism. These have provided cyber girls and net girls a kind of women-only space. At the same time, rife with irony of third-wave feminism because cyberspace is disembodied, it permits all users the opportunity to cross gender boundaries, and so the very notion of gender has been unbalanced in a way that encourages experimentation and creative thought. This is in keeping with the third-wave celebration of ambiguity and refusal to think in terms of us and them. Most third-wavers refuse to identify as feminists and reject the word that they find limiting and exclusionary. Rural feminism tends to be global, multicultural, and it shuns simple answers or artificial categories of identity, gender, and sexuality. Its transversal politics means that differences such as those of ethnicity, class, sexual orientation, etc., are celebrated and recognized as dynamic, situational, and provisional. Reality is conceived not so much in terms of fixed structures and power relations. But in terms of performance within contingencies, third wave feminism breaks boundaries. So that's a basic overview of the three waves of feminism as a social movement. We must remember that while we're studying works of fiction, The authors were living in our timeline, in a history where these movements were very real and hard to avoid or ignore, especially for women writers. These values inform the school of literary criticism itself. So knowing the history of the social movement really can help us to interpret a text through a literary feminist lens. Here are some of the basic tenets of feminist criticism. With roots in the 1800s, And coming into its own in the 1970s through the 1990s, feminist criticism holds that rather than viewing a literary work as something which contains the world or is a world unto itself, we should view the work as contained by the world. In other words, literature should not be separated from its contexts, its physical circumstances, the real world material conditions under which it is made, read, studied. Feminist critics have revalued the political, social, geographical, and historical context within which literature exists. Boundaries between the text and the world, the text and the critic, the text and the reader, are considered fluid, shifting. Who the critic, reader, and writer are, and where they are located in the world, influences how a work is read and what it means. The critic is interested in what a text does to the reader, and what the reader projects into the text. The work is read for its extra literary values, or for values that, at the least, are not exclusively literary. This means that the critic's focus begins to include, or even to center on the gender, race, nationality, and social class of the writer, the critic, the reader, or characters within a work. The way a work is shaped by its cultural contexts and the way by which cultural contexts shape the work are key subjects of study. Are some additional questions and issues that feminist critics will consider when they analyze a text. One, does a given literary work promote or undermine women's issues in social justice? Much feminist criticism is intent upon examination of texts with the purpose of improving real lives, no knowledge for knowledge's sake. Many feminist critics might not ask what a work means, But what does it do to make the world a better place for real people? Two, what issues exist in a given literary work of specific importance to women and women's perspectives, values, categories, epistemologies, and experiences? Three, the feminist critic does not assume herself to be objective and ideology free or neutral. The life, social location, and biases of the critic are openly admitted and even considered a part of the critical work being done. Traditional criticism and research assumes objectivity and an apolitical stance, while in fact being profoundly shaped by male ideology and tradition. It is not gender neutral. Feminist work makes explicit its political bent. Four. How are female perspectives and the experience represented in literary works by writers of either gender? How is the feminine component of traditional binary systems regarded in any given work? Five, how does a given work critique the dominant culture and its institutions? Six, what non-linear interdisciplinary tools and approaches can be applied to a literary work? And how might we mix the traditionally feminine world of the personal and the domestic with the traditionally masculine world of public research and study? A feminist university instructor might take an orthodox, an unorthodox, unmasculine approach to teaching literature by developing assignments which blur the personal and the academic, the creative and the scholarly, the intuitive and the intellectual? She may openly promote feminist values as well. 7. How has a given work been read or misread by male critics? Where have particular works by women been placed in the canon and why? The feminist critic may bring to light aspects of a text formerly unacknowledged or misunderstood as a result of the male-dominated critical tradition. In other words, the critic may revision the work. 8. How does the gender of the reader or writer affect how a work means? 8. How does the gender of a reader or writer affect what a work means? How is writing itself gendered? Feminist readings examine the social and biological bases of gender, the very mechanisms within which gender operates. 9. What are unacknowledged gender-based biases in any literary work? What do androcentric texts do to women, and how do they structure our experience? 10. What does it mean in a given story or poem to be a man or woman? How is gender in a work constructed? Are gender roles in the work equal, traditional, non-traditional? How do characters in the work match or not match common gender stereotypes? All of these questions and more are available to you on our Blackboard page so that you can begin viewing literary works through the lens of feminism. We're going to focus this theory on Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper. So if you haven't yet taken a look at that story, you'll now be primed to view it in a feminist feminist light. And if you have already read Gilman's story, I hope you can start to appreciate some of her authorial choices in a new way as acts of defiance and pursuits of equality.